So good morning. How's everybody today? Good? All right. Well, welcome to what we call our family gathering of Cultivate Church. Uh, we call it that because uh, we believe that um, because of Jesus and his work for us to adopt us into God's family, we are God's family. And so we gather as God's family. Uh, and so uh, as we're together, we call this our our family gathering rather than church because we believe that we are the church because God made us so and we gather as his people. So um, hope that uh, you're experiencing just a little bit of that, especially if you're new with us, um, that, uh, that we would be a community that, that loves one another and, and those that are in our midst just like Jesus loves us. So that's really our goal. Um, we have been starting a series. We started it last week, uh, obviously, that we're calling Tough Stuff. Uh, and what we're doing through this uh, series in the months of September and October are looking at some of the issues, the topics, the, the difficult things that we often try to avoid in life. Things like suffering and pain and grief and trial and loss. Uh, things that we don't like to experience and we try everything we can not to. And yet, um, one thing that I've learned, uh, both before I was a believer in Jesus and now, and now having... Uh, been a believer for over a decade, is that suffering does come, both to those who believe and those who don't. And so we need to know how to deal with it when it does come. And I think the good news in that is that God actually wants us to be equipped when we deal with it. He doesn't want us to be in the dark about how to go through uh, difficult seasons and tough things. He wants, in fact, I think over time, He wants to develop a toughness in us so that we would be somewhat inflappable when, when seasons of trial come. And the only way that you become that is by going through that, unfortunately. It's not one of those things that you can read in a book, is it? Uh, and learn uh, by through, like in a classroom, and then suddenly like go, oh, I'm, I'm ready for the trial. No, you become ready through it. That's one of the things that I, I've been learning. So last week we, we started by looking at a psalm that... that kind of kicked us off with this idea, and today we're going to start out in the book of Job. And so we're going to be in the the book of Job for the next five weeks, actually, looking at the various things that that book has to teach us about this whole idea. And the the very first thing that we get right out of the gate when we get to chapter 1 of Job is that it begins to deal with the question that just plagues us every time anything having to do with suffering comes into our life. Can you think of what that question is that we ask? Why? Yeah. We ask why. Why this? Why now? Why me? Why those things? Why, why, why? We want an answer to the question why. And so that's kind of what Job 1 deals with, although we might not like the answers that we get from it, at least at first. So let's we're going to look at, starting in, in verse uh, 6 of Job 1, uh, I think we have the, the page number up there, although I forget what it is, 350, if you want to follow along in the books that, that we've got, uh, in the Bibles that we've got here. Um, so let's see what it, it says. So, one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, Satan is God's adversary, also comes, uh, came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered or have you seen my servant Job? 
There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does this Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything that he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and he said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. It's getting worse and worse, right? It's about to get a whole lot worse. When he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at your oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord, or blessed be the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord be praised. That's where we get that song from. If you realize that. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's an uncomfortable story, right? Um, There's a lot that we can learn from the book of Job, but I don't like the first chapter. Do you? Um, Because it says some things about suffering that at first are very uncomfortable to us. Uh, And it teaches us some things about this whole idea of loss, especially, that don't sit well with our Western kind of 21st century minds. But I think if we press into it a little bit, we're going to see that there's actually some things that we need to learn, if not are critical to learn, especially, especially if we find ourselves at the moment going through a season that feels a little bit like Job's life. Um, so let's jump into those things. Here's the first thing we need to know is that there are no easy answers when it comes to the why of suffering. There are no easy answers, and so we need to avoid some of the easy answers that we often hear are the reasons why we might experience suffering or others might experience suffering. And so let me just ask you, because we dialogue quite a bit here, and so if this is new to you, this is kind of what we do generally, but you get to respond to this. What are some of the easy answers when it comes to suffering that we often hear to that question of why? 
okay, it's God's will, so just accept it. All right? Yeah, he has a reason, so just wait on the reason. Yeah. If you were suffering for whatever reason, it's probably because you brought it on yourself. And so, just... <laughs> Thanks for being honest, Terry. <laughs> and what's, so what's being said by that? Just root out whatever is wrong. Whatever you did, which you're going to see is actually some of the advice that Job gets later on. Just root out whatever you did, whatever's wrong in your own heart. Confess those things and everything will be right again. It's an easy answer. doesn't really jive with this uh, particular story. Yeah. Yeah, somebody else's fault. Which more often than not moves us into blame over what the other person has done to us. But it actually keeps us enslaved to the suffering itself. Which isn't, I don't think, God's purpose in it at all. What's that? We have to what? Oh, pay our dues. Yeah. So pay your penance, right? Just put in uh, the good effort and you'll get yourself out of it. It's proof that there is no God. Or if there is a God, he's either incompetent or he doesn't love you. Right? Or he's out to lunch. Yeah. He's just... (laughs) Right? Right, yeah, it's just my turn. Got to take my licks. God doles it out to everybody. It's just my my seat. Oh, I hate that one, don't you? <laughs> yeah, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. Um, I'll just say that's not true. <laughs> yeah, he often does. Yeah. So he he's. It's an expression of his love for you. (laughs) Which is an easy answer. There's a whole lot behind that answer. But oftentimes when it's said, it's said in a, you know, almost dismissive way. And so just deal with it. Fuck up. Endure it. He loves you. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Have you seen my servant James? No. He is nowhere to be found. There is nothing of worth to, to, to tell at all. <laughs> be a very short book. <laughs> yeah, Carol. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually, that verse actually is referring to temptation, not to, to suffering. So we might look at that a little bit later on, but that's that's what that's dealing with. Yeah. Right, yeah, so he's trying to teach you something through it. So just figure out what it is that he's trying to teach you, and the lesson will be over. Right? Um, here's the thing about this: the way that this story begins. It doesn't give us any of those easy answers, does it? Um, all the, the easy answers that we sort of cling to, it, it dismisses both of those things. And, and particularly, there are two big ones 
when it comes to suffering that are kind of prevalent both within the church and and well, one of them more outside of the church. But so there there are kind of two basic ways that people try to deal with suffering when it does come. And one of those ways is to say, well, if if I'm going through something, then the reason I'm doing it is because I've done something to deserve it. And so God wouldn't be allowing this if it weren't me who kind of brought it on. And so God is punishing me in some way or form, or He's disciplining me in some way. And so I need to do something in order to alleviate the pain. So I need to go to church more, or I need to pray more, or I need to be a better person, or I need to sin less, or whatever the case might be. And, and the, here's the shame of, of this particular answer. It, it is found more often in the church than in the world. Because I've heard people say things like, well, if you just had a little bit more faith, then God wouldn't be allowing this. And so just increase your faith and God will decrease the pain. I've actually heard someone say that. And it's bogus. It's not the truth. Because here's the thing, what we're saying when we say this, if we say this, is since I did something to bring this on, I can do something to get myself out of it. And if I do the right things, if I push the right buttons at the right time and pull the right levers, then God will bless me and He'll have to remove the suffering if I live a good life and I'll get the good life because that's what I've been promised. Now the other way of dealing with suffering is kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's the more cynical approach that says, well, the reason that you're experiencing suffering is because it's random. Either God doesn't exist at all or if He does exist, He's out to lunch or He doesn't love you. Or some other reason. God can't be in control because if He was in control, He wouldn't allow this. Or He can't be loving because if He's in control, then He must not love you. Or He doesn't exist at all and everything is completely random. See, those are the kind of the two approaches. And what Job's story does is it, it smashes both of those reasons, doesn't it? Because right from the beginning, we see that it's the Lord says to Satan, have you considered... My servant Job, no one on earth is like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And what's what's Satan's response? Oh, you think he's good, huh? Yeah. Let bad things happen to him, and and you'll see what the result is. I'll discredit him. And then the Lord says to Satan, very well. Everything that he has is in your power but on the man himself do not lay a finger, and then Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. And you might read this the first time and you go, like this just proves that God isn't loving. I mean, it proves all of our worst fears about God and what He's like. Look how heartless He is. He's essentially making a bet with Satan over this one man's life. But please, I mean, don't miss the point of this because it's actually saying some, some really important things about God's relationship to suffering. What do you think it's actually saying about his relationship to suffering? What are some of the things that come to mind for you? Let me ask this. Did God create the suffering? No, actually, when Satan comes to him, he goes, stretch out your hand and do this. You think he's so great You put out your hand and you do these things to him. And what does God say in response? No. To that question. He says, very well, 
I'll let you do whatever it is you think you can do to discredit him. But he doesn't stretch out his own hand. In fact, the whole idea of the suffering that Job goes through is not God's idea. He didn't come up with it. In, in fact, he didn't come up with it not just in Job's life, but generally in the world. It was not God's plan for this to be a world that's full of disease and death and destruction and disasters. It was not part of the plan. God uses and redeems those things as we're going to see, but those things are in the world, but they weren't what God intended for His good creation. They were the result of another process that came into place, which was essentially us, His chief image bearers, walking away from the giver of life. You know what happens when you walk away from the one who is the source of life itself? You get the opposite of life. And in rushed in, into our world, into the world that God made good, everything that is the result of us walking away from the one who sustains it and wanted to be a part of it from the very beginning. See, death is the result when you separate yourself from the giver of life. It doesn't mean that every time that we experience suffering that it's directly our fault, but things in this world that we experience would not be there in the first place had we not rebelled against God through our first parents, Adam and Eve. They just wouldn't be a part of this world. So God didn't create, nor does He really desire the suffering that's in Job's life, and nor does He desire the suffering that might be in yours or could come to you. But the second thing that we need to know is even though he didn't desire it, who's in control in this situation? Who has the authority to say what can and cannot be done? God does. He says to Job, look, you can do this and you can do that, but you cannot do this. He's in complete control of everything that Satan is allowed to do. It's not that Satan is terrorizing Job and God's just trying to do everything He can to limit the damage. God tells Satan exactly what he's allowed to do and what he's not allowed to do. And my hunch is that Satan would do much worse if God actually allowed him to. And so you might ask, well, why does God allow it in the first place? Why does He allow Satan to do anything to Job? And the answer is that God actually only allows Satan to do enough to to accomplish exactly the opposite of what Satan intended for Job's life. What was Satan's chief goal? Wasn't to terrorize Job? What was his what was his ultimate aim when it came to Job? Curse God, denounce him. Yeah. It's essentially to put God into a position where God is a liar. God just said, have you seen my servant Job? Let me list off the qualities that I've not only seen in him, but put in him. Where did Job's goodness come from? Where did his uprightness come from? Why does he shun evil and love God? It's because God made it so in Job's life, right? He is the, the, the genesis of all the goodness that's in Job's life from the first place. And God's going, essentially, don't look at at. at have you seen you know, how good Job is, but have you seen how good I've made Job? You see what I've done in his life? Have you seen my creative work in him? And Satan comes along and he says, his ultimate purpose is to say, I can prove you wrong. 
I can prove that you don't have the ability to make people good. I can prove that, that you're actually a liar and that your words don't hold true, that your promises aren't true. He's trying to discredit Job, but he's also trying to make God out to be a liar. And so he's bringing suffering into Job's life essentially to discredit him and, and to discount God's word. And yet, what do we know about Job? Even before even reading the book, even before this morning, how many of you had heard of the man Job before today? Huh, interesting. We've all heard about him. Why is that? Because he's one of the most famous men in the history of the world. See, God hates evil. And yet he allows Satan to bring evil into Job's life in such a way that it actually destroys Satan's true goal. In the end, was Satan right or wrong? In the end, he was probably wrong. And the reason that we know that is because Satan accomplished the opposite of what he intended. He wanted to discredit Job, and yet God uses Job even today, thousands of years later, to bring hope and perspective to literally millions of people over thousands of years. Job's life is an example, right? It's the reason that we know about him. It's the reason he's in the Bible in the first place. And the truth is, this is actually how God works with us. God hates evil the evil that we all experience in this life, but he's also in control of it and he's using it to destroy Satan's purposes in our lives. He's redeeming it, in other words. But here's the other thing that we need to know about Job. He never finds out the reason that he's suffering. You know that? Not even at the end of the book. He never finds out. He has no idea why he's suffering. In fact, You may not get this opportunity, but God actually appears face-to-face with Job at the end of the book. And if if you're reading along in the book and you think, okay, there's been this big conversation between God and Satan at the front end of the book. At At the end of the book, you have this big conversation between God and Job. One of the things you would think would be in the conversation between God and Job is, hey, Job, I know this has been really tough, but back at the beginning of this story, I was having a conversation with Satan. Or I just want you to have a little bit of perspective here and know that the reasons why I've been putting you through all these things is because I want to make you into a great man and I want to do all these things and there will be thousands of people, millions of people throughout thousands of years that will look at your example and they'll gain hope from it and perspective from it. Do you say any of those things? No, here's what he says. Instead of answering all of Job's deepest questions, God actually begins to ask Job questions. These are some of the questions that God asked Job at the end of the book. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you and say, here we are? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God? He he doesn't provide any answers. He actually provides questions. He's saying, Job, I I know what I'm doing. I have reasons for them, but he never actually says what those reasons are. 
And I don't know about you, but as an American, that makes me really uncomfortable. Because we expect reasons. Like when our government does something and we're not okay with it, we want a reason and we want to hold people accountable to their reasoning, right? We just expect that. It's part of our government. It's part of our justice system. It's part of our everyday lives. We expect justified reasons for the things that people do, especially when they affect us. And so when we don't get those reasons, it makes us very uncomfortable. And here's the thing that God is communicating to us. He's not obligated to give us His reasons. He's not obligated. Why? Because He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who made the dawn and tells the lightning bolts where to go. See, it's important for us to know why He doesn't tell us why. Because the reason, here's the, here's the reason why I want to know why. I don't know about you, but here's the reason why I often want to know why. I want to answer to the reason why because it helps me feel like I'm still in control even when I'm not. Do you ever feel that way? Like you don't know what's going on in the situation. You feel like something's done something that's out of your control, but it's affecting your life. And if you just, if I, if I could just understand the reason why they did it, or why it was happening, then I'm back in control, right? I feel like I've got my head above water, like I'm suddenly, I've got the reins again in some way, even though I might not. And so if we think that, you know, if our, if our understanding of, of why things are happening, if our easy answer is that I've done something wrong, and I know that I've done something wrong, well, then I can fix it. I can try harder. I can be better. I will be better. You'll see I'll be better. I can force God to bless me. He'll have to. See, we're in control again. Or the opposite of that is coming to the conclusion that God doesn't really care or He doesn't really have control. He doesn't have the power to do something. And so because of that, I can live any way I want to. I don't have to serve a God like that. I don't owe Him anything. There I go again. I'm in control. See, God is saying to us through the story of Job in a very uncomfortable way, I'm the only one who's really ultimately in control. And I'm calling you to serve me even though you may never know the reasons why. Because I'm God. And by nature of being God, I'm both in control and I love you. So that's the first one. There aren't easy answers. It gets better from here. (laughs) The second, though, is even though we, we, we shouldn't maybe accept easy answers, we do need to accept living without an answer. Uh, sometimes when we're confronted with these types of things, we sort of resign ourselves to living without an answer. We go, okay, I understand that God is God and I am not, and therefore I sort of begrudgingly will accept the fact that I don't get an answer. But something that, that Job is telling to us through this story is that we shouldn't just resign ourselves to it. We should actually embrace the reason that we don't know. We need not to know. It's not just that we don't get to know. We actually need not to know. You say, why in the world is that? Well, here's what God says about Job. He says he's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Um, that word fear, it, it 
sounds more negative than it is. In Hebrew, it actually means something like an inward-on wonder. It's a, it's a, a heart response. It's a loyalty from the heart. And so God, God is saying, Job is loyal to me, but he's loyal not out of obligation. He's loyal out of his heart. In other words, he loves me. That's the reason that he serves me. That's the reason he's so great is because he loves me. And what does Satan say in response? Does Job fear you for nothing? Does he, does he love you just for you? Haven't you given him all these things? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. Everybody knows how rich Job is. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has. Take it away from him and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, Job does not love you for you. He loves you for the things that you give him. He loves you for the stuff. He loves you for the blessing that you're bringing into his life. He doesn't love you because you're God and he just loves you. He loves you for it. He loves you for the things that you give to him. So let me ask this. Is, is Satan right about Job? It doesn't seem that way, at least at first, right? Because he responds how? In worship of God, instead of cursing. Later on, though, we're going to see that actually Job doesn't fully love God for who God is. There are parts of his heart that actually need changing. Let me broaden it, though. And ask this, as a human race, in general, is Satan right or wrong that we love God, not for God himself? What's the evidence of that, if you say yes? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love God not because I love God and he's lovable. I love him because of what he'll do for me. Particularly if I think that there's something called hell. I want to do everything I possibly can to avoid that place. And so I will do everything I can and come to the one that I know has the power to, to change my circumstance. And so I'll say, if, if the way to get access to something better and avoidance of something worse is to say, I love the person who's in control to give me the thing that I most want, well, then I'll say it a hundred times. But is it genuine? Yeah. And here, I mean, this, this gets really personal, right? Because I, I've, I've heard this expressed over and over and over and over and over again. God's judgment is on you. His wrath is on you because you've walked away from him. And because of that wrath, you deserve hell. Here, all those things are essentially true. And if you want to avoid separation, eternal separation from God and everything that's good, all your loved ones, everything that you've known has been good, right, and perfect in this world. If you want any of those things, then the way that you keep them for all eternity is that you come to Jesus. That's essentially the gospel that we've been sold. Which, by the way, is not good news. It's loving God for what we can get from Him rather than loving Him for Him. Right, so God rescuing us from maybe the things that we've created in our own life, right? See, we, we often use God because of his position rather than love God for who he is. So let me flip this around so that you can get a bit of perspective on this. 
How do you feel when someone comes into your life and you know that they don't really love you for you, but what, for, what, what you can do for them? How do you feel at your job when someone starts to, to really encourage you and come alongside you and then you find out that the, the only reason that they're really doing that is so that they can advance and they see you as the gatekeeper to their own success? Women, how do you feel when you have a man that comes into your life and he seems genuine and kind and loving and respectful and then when he finds out you won't sleep with him, he's gone? How does that make you feel? Not particularly great, right? You feel used. You feel abused. You feel like somebody didn't... They they weren't interested in you. They were interested in what you could give them. And essentially, Satan is saying, well, this, this, is, this isn't just a, a problem with certain human beings. This is a problem with every human being. We're all alike. We use others and we use God. And it looks from the outside like we're serving Him and that we love Him and that we love one another. But inside, in our hearts, we're actually something different. We're doing it for ourselves. So is Satan right? Mostly, yeah. This is not the way, though, that God designed us to work. And here's how, I mean, you can look to a number of examples, but one of the chief ways that I know that's not the way that he designed us to work is look at the, the thing that he created that was to be the example on earth for the way that his relationship works with us, and that is marriage. See, the reason that a lot of marriages end up breaking down is because you have two people that get into a relationship with with one another and they basically get into it and say, it's 50-50. You do for me what I think I deserve and then I will reciprocate and do for you what what you think that you deserve. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then I am not obligated to hold up my end of the bargain. Actually, uh, this, this ends up terrorizing marriages because... Lo and behold, we can't ever hold up our end of the bargain. We say we will. We commit to it, which is good for us to do with God's help. But ultimately, we need grace because we end up falling away from that. So marriage isn't a 50-50 proposition. It is a covenant, not a contract. A contract says you hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. A covenant says even if you do not hold up your end, I will hold up mine. So help me God. That's a covenant. And that's essentially the the way that it's a picture of the way that God works with us. That we're not in it to get something out of it. We're in it to, 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 to be in relationship with the person whom we're in the relationship with. So here's like if I talked about my marriage with Mandy and, and all I said to you about our marriage is all the things that I value because all the things that she does to me, but I never talked about her as an individual and loving her for who he, who she is you would come to the conclusion that I'm a terrible spouse. Like, I mean, he talks about her, but every time he talks about her, he talks about all, like what she's doing for him. What kind of spouse is that? And you'd be right. See, in marriage, we're called to love the person for the person. It works the same way in our relationship with the one who created us. To be in relationship with God means the exact same thing. That even though we start out in a relationship often by thinking of what God will give us, we're thinking about maybe the, 
heaven or blessing or peace or comfort or all these other things that, that come as a byproduct of knowing Him, the only way to actually stay in a relationship with God is to learn to love Him for who He is alone. And when I think of, of the people that have kind of come and gone in a relationship with Christ, more often than not, you know, when, when people come into a relationship with Jesus, they think this is the most amazing thing ever. I, like, I'm always going to love him. It's always going to be great. And then the moment that difficulty starts to hit, they begin to fall away. And I always ask, like, well, why is that? And I think the reason is because we're in it for the things that Jesus gives rather than Jesus himself. See, the truth is, the only way that you learn actually how to love God for who he is alone is to be in a relationship with him when all you get is him. Does that make sense? Is to, is to continue to be in a relationship when you're not getting the other things. You're not getting the peace. You're not getting the comfort. You, you don't have a, a, a present understanding of heaven and resurrection being there in your, your daily life and your existence. You're not... You don't feel like you're receiving blessing. You feel like all you're getting is everything stripped away from you except for Him. And that's the point. See, it's true for Job and it's true for us. That the way that we come to know and actually grow in a relationship with God is to be in a relationship when all we get is Him. See, the only way for... God to turn Job into someone like that, someone who, who loves God for God alone, is to have him suffer and not know why. And you might go, well, that's not fair. If God would just say why Job goes through the suffering, if God would just say why we go through the suffering, if he just open the door for us so that we could see beyond it a little bit and know what it's going to produce in us, then I'd be able to endure it better than I am today. Better than I am right now. If He just told me what's going on or what's going to come from it, then I'd be able to handle it. Do you see what you're actually doing if you say those things? It comes back to serving God for the thing that you'd get from the suffering. See, the only way to be sure that you're loving God for Him and Himself alone is to be in a position where loving God gives you nothing in return and you don't understand why. See, that's the reason why we can't know all the reasons for our suffering. There can't be a full and complete reason why. Otherwise, you'll never know the kind of person that you can become through it. And I love the way that Job responds. It's pretty amazing, right? Uh, Because he he responds, and at first it seems like, man, the way he responds is miraculous. Because he says that this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Notice what, God, notice what Job doesn't say. 
which is amazing to me. He doesn't say, how dare you take these things away from me? They're mine. I earned them. Now, what does he say? He says, these things were a gift from God. I never earned them. They were given to me as a complete act of grace, and so God chose to take them away. So they were on loan to me, and the loan is now up, and I will go on with the God who can never be taken away from me. And I don't know if you realize this, but here's, here's what suffering often does for us. And this is critical for us to understand. If we build our lives on other things, if we build our lives on, on status or career or even our children or our spouse or partner, if we build our, our, our lives on these things, if the foundation and functional center of who we are as people is built on something other than God, then if you take away the foundation of your life, when you go through suffering, it takes away the source of your happiness, right? You feel like you're being pulled away from everything that gives you joy in this life because that's what suffering is. It's taking away something. But here's the thing that's actually being revealed about Job. If God is your deepest joy, if His love is the ultimate love that you could ever receive, and you build your life on that love, the love that you know can never be taken away from you, then even though you get joy from those other things, even though you like having them in your life, when they're taken away, it actually drives you deeper into the ultimate source of your joy, which is God Himself. That's the reason why Job actually became the Job that we know about. Is because when things were began to get taken away from him, it actually drove him deeper into the one he loved most. So go and be like Job, right? Wrong. Remember we talked about last week the fact that uh, Haman's example wouldn't be enough in the end? It actually doesn't lead to us having the strength that we need in order to endure the things that he endured. And, and the same is, or can be, and should be said about Job. And we're going to find out later on that Job wasn't actually a perfect sufferer. So, how do you actually discover God as your deepest joy? How do you get to the point where you actually understand that he is both in control and loves you regardless of the way that things may seem from an outside perspective as you look at the landscape of your life. Well, I don't know how Job did it. I have no idea. What gave Job the confidence to go through those things and to respond the way that he did? But I know how we need to. We need to await that God does actually have a final answer. That there is a an answer, so to speak. It may not be the answer that we desire. It may not be the answer that we expect. But there is an answer that actually leads us to understand that God is the most loving one that we could possibly be in a relationship with and to to rest even when it seems like things are being stripped away from us. In this situation, we see that Satan actually is coming to God and he's saying, Job, he doesn't really love you. He's just using you. You know he's done that before? He's come to someone and say, this person doesn't really love you. They're not in it for you. 
They're just using you. Where else did Satan say that? Yeah, he said it to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. He said it to to us about God. Instead of going to God and, and saying, Job doesn't love you, he comes to us and he says, God doesn't really love you, he's just using you. And here's the thing, when, when Satan said bad things to God about us, even though there was truth in them, God didn't accept them, did he? But when Satan said bad things to us about God, even though there was absolutely no truth in them, we bought it, hook and sinker. We bought the lie. And the lie of Satan is essentially, if you trust God completely, if you give your heart over to him, if if you make him the center of your deepest joy, you'll never ultimately be happy. It will go badly for you. He can't be trusted. He doesn't really love you. He's, he's, he's in control, and he knows that if, if you rebelled against him, then you'd be in control. And what he wants more than anything is not you, it's to be in control. He's a control freak. And that message, it sank deep into the hearts of our first parents and it sunk deep into the heart of every single human being that's ever come along since then. See, what's, what's the reason that we can't really handle bad things when, it, when they come into our life? Why is it that we immediately think the worst about God anytime something bad happens? It's because we bought the lie. We're not convinced that the Lord of the universe loves us. We're not convinced that the Lord who made you loves you for you and you alone. We think he has another agenda, which is essentially to say that Satan is telling the truth and God is telling a lie. See, the biggest thing that we need to handle suffering, to handle life in general, just to be honest with you, is absolute proof that he loves us unconditionally and will love us unconditionally no matter how things look in our lives. We need to know that. We need to believe that Satan is the liar and that God is the one who's telling the truth. And we need to tell ourselves that message over and over and over. And we need others to tell us that message over and over and over, especially in times of trial. So how do we know? What what is it that we can tell ourselves to convince us that it's actually true? That God is the one who's telling the truth and that Satan is the liar? Well, Job isn't the only person who suffered in God's story. In fact, later on, Satan comes to another servant of the Lord, another innocent sufferer, who not only had every earthly possession stripped from him, but who was also stripped of his clothing and his life, who ended up at the end of his life dying naked and ashamed on a cross. And as he's suffering, he's asking, why, why, why? And he got no answer. See, Job was somewhat innocent when he suffered, right? There, there wasn't a reason for which it got brought onto his life. But Jesus was completely innocent. Jesus was totally innocent of every absolute thing that he could possibly bring on himself. He always obeyed. He always trusted. He always walked in the way that God led him to walk. And even though Jesus was the one 
the only one who was totally innocent his entire life, we end up finding out that Jesus suffered more than everyone. Not only did he suffer in this life, but he ended up suffering on a cross and dying and having the weight of humanity's sin placed on him instead of us. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but Jesus is the only person who ever really served God for nothing. He got nothing out of the deal. Right? I mean, what could Jesus possibly earn through going through the suffering that he endured? Status? He's the one who made the universe. Power? He created everything. The love of God? He had it for all eternity. Recognition? The angels worshipped him around a throne. And he left the throne to come to earth and suffer. He had nothing to gain by going through the suffering. He served God for nothing. Do you want to know why? Do you know why? We need to know why He did it. And the reason that He did it is that He did it for us. And that's our proof. So that those of us who are suffering and we don't know why, and we want to believe the lie of Satan that God doesn't love us, that it would be the proof for us that God actually does love us and does care because He gave up what was most precious to Him and had Him suffer and die so that we could suffer and live. See, Jesus, who is God in human form, He came and He loved us as we are for who we are. In spite of who we were and are. I mean, Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were still believing the, the lie that God doesn't care and, and turned us to other things instead of giving us His love, while we were still in that place, Christ died for us. So here's the thing. When you've been captivated by a God who loves you like that, that it actually enables you to love Him in return regardless of what your temporary circumstances are telling you about that same very God. It's the only way that I know of to break the chain of lies that our eyes and our ears want to tell us because Satan is controlling our senses and telling us something that isn't actually true. So we can choose to believe what our our senses are telling us or we can choose to believe the story that God has us a, a part of. And we need to know that story over and over and over again because the more we know that story, the more we interpret our experiences through the lens of that story rather than through the lens of a lie. Do you want to break the chain? you want to know that God loves you unconditionally and that He will love you and never abandon you? Continue to tell yourself that story. Continue to tell it to one another. Not in a, a pithy, kind of dismissive sort of way, but remind yourself and remind one another of the deep love that's found only in this God who came and suffered for us. That's the, that's the only reason why that will help you release control of the other desire to know why. It's the only one that I know of. But it's the only one that works. 